Welcome to episode 15 of the Housebound Historian. My name's Felix Bunnell. We're reading Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle, written by Murray Morgan, published in 1951, as I always say, by Viking. In this episode, we're still in the part of the book called John Considine and the Box Houses, 1893 to 1910, and this is section four of that part of the book. The setup for a sporting man at the turn of the century would have been perfect, a Skid Road entrepreneur remarked to a reporter, if it weren't for the damned newspapers and the goddamn politicians. John Considine might well have breathed an amen to that remark. As proprietor of the best box house in town, he was an important figure, not only in sporting circles, but politically. The Fourth Ward, which took in the Skid Road, had more votes that could be delivered than any other section of the city. The men in position to deliver that vote were the gamblers, the saloon keepers, and the box house operators. Considine's control of a considerable block of Skid Road votes made him important not only to habitués of basement theaters, but to nice people north of the deadline. He had what they needed. As he became settled in his power, the papers now referred to him as the statesman and the boss sport, Considine developed a rather regal air. His suits were more expensive and more subdued, his ties more gaudy, his collars higher. He looked like a tough Herbert Hoover. Bartenders and saloons on both sides of Yesler became accustomed to serving him his favorite drink, ice water. He knew an increasing number of important people by their first names, and he chewed more gum, five sticks at a time. He gathered a retinue. His right-hand man was his brother Tom, a burly fellow with a local reputation for toughness. Doc Shaughnessy served as his shadow, bodyguard, and court jester. In addition to serving Considine, Doc opened a physical culture institute where he offered to, quote, remove fat fast from fighters and men under 40. For those over 40, I'll just try, unquote. His clientele was drawn from both the business and the sporting elements. Considine, too, branched out. He bought an interest in a saloon. He backed a gambling hall. He invested thoughtfully in real estate. He got rich, and he got caught in the political crossfire between two rival Republican papers. Politics and the press were pretty much the same thing in Seattle at the turn of the century. Political figures owned two of the three large papers, the Times and the Post-Intelligencer, The star was then, as later, relatively impartial, relatively incompetent, and wanly opportunistic. Bayard Vailer, later to become well-known as a playwright, worked briefly as a reporter on the star, and years later still reveled in an incident that was symbolic of the era. Vailer says he uncovered the fact that a young naval officer had lost some $2,000 in a roulette game in the biggest hotel in town. He asked the proprietor about it. Yes, that's true, the proprietor said, but I didn't think anybody'd find out about it. He went on, I guess you're a pretty bright young man, aren't you? I've been looking for a long time for a young fellow like you. Why don't you come here and live in the hotel? It won't cost you anything. You can get a paragraph into the paper every now and again, and that'll boost the hotel along. Vailer knew what he meant. He reported the matter indignantly to one of the editors, who was very much interested. He asked, Are you going over there to live? Did you take his offer? Vailer told him that of course he hadn't taken the offer. The editor looked decidedly relieved. You're going to write the story, aren't you? he asked. Certainly I'm going to write the story, said Vailer. It's a good story. The editor said he thought it was a good story, too. It didn't appear in the star that night, though, or any other night, and the editor, who was unmarried and a lonely soul, promptly moved over to the hotel to live. Such were the ethics of Seattle journalism in the post-Klondike era. Political ethics were no better. Honest Tom Humes was mayor of Seattle, and Humes, a fine-looking character with curly gray hair and a curly gray mustache, he bore a resemblance to Mark Twain, and according to his political opponents, sometimes thought he was Mark Twain, burned candles nightly before the image of an open town. Hume's rise to political power had been made possible by the gold rush. 
During the depressive days of the mid-90s, Seattle had a reformist government dominated by business leaders. The municipal politics of the day were openly partisan and the mayors were Republican. Consequently, the men who wished to open up the town concentrated on gaining influence among the Republicans. When Frank Black, a milk-toastish hardware merchant, was elected in 1896, he found to his real surprise that the Republican machine had made certain commitments in regard to the police force that he could not, in conscience, abide. Yet, not being a battler, he did not want to lead the fight against what he considered corruption. He made a deal. He resigned, and the Republican majority on the city council elected his hard-hitting friend, Colonel W.D. Wood, to the mayor's office. All was serene with the forces of righteousness for a few months. Then the Portland arrived with her cargo of gold, and soon after came the gold hunters. It is probable that not even the redoubtable Colonel Wood could have held the line against a more interesting nightlife, but he would certainly have tried had he remained mayor. Wood, however, came from 49er stock. The lure of gold was strong upon him. He resisted the urge to gamble on a prospector's luck. But when friends offered to back him in a merchandising enterprise that could hardly fail, he was to take a load of hardware north and sell to prospectors in the field, he asked and was granted a leave of absence. On sailing, Wood left behind his resignation to be accepted by the council if he was kept in Alaska by bad weather or good business. Wood wasn't back when his time was up, and the council, now dominated by people who felt the city was duty-bound to lighten the load of Alaskans, prospective and bona fide, by taking as much of their money as possible, elected Hume's mayor. Tom opened up the town in the interest of good business. He ran on his record in 1898 and was elected again, this time by the people. He came sailing through in 1900. If he pried things even wider open after his re-election, none of his supporters could honestly complain that they were not getting the sort of administration they had voted for. On the surface, everything was lovely for Seattle Republicans, but there was one little difficulty. Tom Humes wanted to be more than mayor. In 1898, he had coveted a seat in the United States Senate, but his ambition had been denied by the state's backwoods and open plains voters, who considered him a city slicker. He wanted to be governor, and 1900 looked like a good year to run. Popular William McKinley, abetted by rough-riding Teddy Roosevelt, could be counted on to carry quite a few of the GOP faithful in on their presidential coattails. Humes was no sooner re-elected mayor in March than he set his henchmen to working for his gubernatorial nomination. He might have made it had it not been for a newcomer to Seattle, John L. Wilson, a dapper ex-senator from Spokane who, with the blessing of Jim Hill, the genius of the Great Northern, had purchased the post-intelligencer in 1899. John Wilson still had political ambitions of his own. He, too, had lost his Senate seat in 1898, now he was ready to settle for being the power openly behind the scenes, the kingmaker. Since Humes was already established as the leading political figure in Seattle, Wilson had nothing to gain by backing him. If he did, he would merely be another Humes hanger-on. He set out to undermine the mayor and build up a candidate of his own. Wilson blocked Humes' nomination. He persistently struck the theme that Humes was a political hog intent on gobbling up all the good jobs. Not only did he stop Humes, but he secured the nomination of his own candidate, a businessman named Frank. Came the election. McKinley was in. So were Republicans running for offices from congressman to constable, but not Frank. He failed to carry King County, though McKinley rolled up a substantial lead there. Wilson was sure he knew whom to blame. The issue he chose to get back at the mayor was Hume's open-town policy, which indeed had become a little blatant. The post-intelligencer opened up with an attack on corruption in our fair city, which was detailed enough to call for some kind of action. Humes adroitly passed the buck to the chief of police, accepting that worthy's resignation before it was tendered. For his new chief, Humes chose a well-connected young man named William L. Meredith. 
A small, wiry, handsome man of 31, Meredith was a native of Washington, D.C., the son of the head of the Bureau of Engraving. He had come to Seattle as a personal representative of W.C. Hill, an influential Eastern capitalist who had obtained much of the real estate the government reclaimed from Doc Maynard. After finishing his work for Hill, Meredith entered the Customs Service in Seattle, specializing in work with the Chinese. He quit the Customs to join the police force as a detective, then quit the police force to work for John Considine, whom he had first met in line of duty. Meredith followed Considine to Spokane during the Boss Sports hiatus in the Wheat Country, then came back with him to Seattle. For reasons which have never become clear, their relations cooled. Meredith quit Considine and went back to work as a detective. The break became complete in 1899 when Meredith had the temerity to arrest a pickpocket friend of Considine's. For the Boss Sport, it was a matter of principle. He claimed that Meredith had taken protection money from the dip, then double-crossed him. How could you trust a detective who would do that? Not long after the arrest of the pickpocket, Meredith was transferred to a clerk's job. He blamed Considine. When Meredith was made chief of police, Considine knew he could count on trouble. It was not long in coming. The law against using women in box houses to hustle drinks was still on the books, and the police began to enforce the law on Considine's side of Washington Street, though nowhere else. This unilateral cleanup failed to placate Wilson. It is doubtful that even a full-scale crusade against vice would have been good enough for him. His morning paper continued to whoop and holler about vice and the threat it posed to the good reputation of Seattle. Soon, a law and order league sprouted. Most of its members were men of the cloth and professional reformers, but there were also some of Wilson's political followers. The league, pure though its avowed purpose was, was really an instrument for Wilson's political ambitions, and it was effective. When the league presented an encyclopedia of charges against Mayor Humes and Chief Meredith to the city council, the council decided that it should find out if Seattle really was an open town. The councilmen appointed a committee of six of their own members and instructed them to conduct hearings, secret hearings, on vice in Seattle. The newspapers were indignant at this star chamber tactic. If the hearings were secret, how could the papers keep the public informed, i.e. cash in on the scandal? The editors needn't have worried. Every secret leaked. All the testimony detrimental to Meredith made banner news daily in the Post-Intelligencer. The statements favoring the administration appeared in the Times, which under the editorship of choleric Colonel Blethen was against anything the Post-Intelligencer was for. The hearing developed into a duel between Considine and Meredith, the weapons being liable at close range. Considine testified first. He told the committee that one of Meredith's henchmen had approached him and demanded a contribution of $500, that he had paid the protection and, not being a trusting type, had followed the man and had seen him give it to Meredith. The post-intelligencer played this testimony for as much as it was worth, perhaps more. A few days later, the hearing produced testimony to the Times' liking. Meredith took the stand in the committee room. He said that Considine was not only a barefaced liar, but a bad influence on young women. His campaign against Considine, Meredith said, was carried on to prevent other innocent girls suffering the fate that had overtaken Mamie Jenkins. He elaborated on that fate. Mamie Jenkins was a 17-year-old contortionist at the People's Theater, who had been, in Meredith's words, quote, ruined by the P.I.'s favorite gambler, unquote. As a result of her fall, Mamie needed an operation which was performed by one Dr. Boxy and paid for by Considine. The day he told the committee this lurid slander, Meredith also moved against Considine on another front. He dispatched Captain John Peer to the Peoples with orders to tell Considine to stop selling drinks or be arrested for violating the box house ordinance. Peer found Considine in a box at the theater. I haven't closed any boxes, Considine said. It's legal to sell drinks in open boxes. I asked the city attorney and he told me to go ahead. 
I know that, but the orders were given to me, Pierre said. You know how it is. Look, Considine said, this is a personal matter. You go back and tell that little son of a bitch that I'll run my business. If they want me for anything at the police station, they can send for me. Then he calmed down a bit and added, Never mind, it will only be a few days before they get that shrimp anyway. The following Friday, the council reported to Mayor Humes that his chief was unfit for office. The committee's findings were that, quote, Money has been paid to Meredith and Detective Wappenstein for the privilege of being permitted to conduct bunko and sure thing games in the city undisturbed, that the fact of their existence was reported to the chief by officers of the force and private individuals, that no notice of these reports was taken, that for a time the fleecing of victims in an open manner was a matter of daily and nightly occurrence, that when the victims complained to the police they were usually told by Meredith or by Wappenstein that they had better be satisfied that they were not themselves incarcerated or detained as witnesses, that in some cases when victims insisted on some assistance from the police in recovering their money, the money was recovered without difficulty, but that the perpetrators of the robbery or bunko were never arrested, and that there seemed to exist some understanding between them and the police that they should not be molested if the money was returned. Mayor Humes looked surprised and pained. He stroked his gray mustache thoughtfully and said he would act on the matter at once. He sent word to Meredith that his resignation would be accepted. The next morning, Saturday, June 22nd, Chief Meredith told Sergeant M.T. Powers to go to a second-hand store and buy a sawed-off shotgun that they had noticed there a few days earlier. While Powers was off shopping, Meredith sat at his desk and wrote a difficult, almost incoherent letter. Honorable T.J. Humes, Mayor of Seattle. Sir, I herewith tender my resignation as Chief of Police to take effect on July 16, 1901. In doing so, I desire to enter an emphatic protest against the Star Chamber investigation of the City Council that, for your sake, prompts me to do so. I was ever willing and sought a fair, open American investigation. Respectfully, W.L. Meredith. Sergeant Powers returned with a gun, an ugly 12-gauge with two barrels. It was barely a yard long from stock to muzzle. What are you going to do with this, Bill? The sergeant asked. I'm going to get my man. On Monday, John Considine visited the offices of his legal advisors, Humphreys and Boswick. They had gathered affidavits from all parties concerned with Mamie Jenkins' operation. The affidavits made Meredith out to be a scurrilous liar. Each document attested that Miss Jenkins had not been made pregnant by Considine, but had, indeed, ruptured herself while performing her widely advertised, quote, miracles of contortions, unquote, on the stage of the peoples. After reading the affidavits, Considine told his lawyers to send word to Meredith that unless he wrote out an immediate confession of error and an apology and had them printed on the first page of the Times, Considine would sue him for libel. Meredith wasn't at the police station, but the lawyers found him at home that evening. They delivered Considine's message. Meredith said, I've already lost my job. Now this. And we'll stop there. That's episode 15 of The Housebound Historian. I'm Felix Bunnell, and we're reading Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle, written by Murray Morgan and published by Viking in 1951. See you next time for the next episode of The Housebound Historian.